If you're visiting today, we're glad that you are here. Um, we have been looking at the book of Romans. And I uh, really appreciate the book of Romans. You've got to understand who wrote Romans. Uh, many of you know that the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. Maybe some of you don't know that uh, Paul was kind of an unlikely character to write this book because before he met Christ, he hated Christianity. He was a Jew. He was a Jew that believed that God had called out only the Jewish nation to be his people and that within the Jewish nation is only those who are righteous. And so Paul boasted in his righteousness that he was a good Jew. But then one day on his way to have Christians literally executed right after Stephen was executed, he met Christ. And uh, when he met Christ, uh, all, uh, all bets were off on what he had believed before. And so God not only called Paul to himself, but, but God called Paul to be the chief spokesman for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that this gospel must be preached to every nation because out of every nation there would be now the new Israel of God, of King Jesus as king. Now that's what we've been looking at. Now, the book of Romans is important because it is Paul's chief apologetic. If, if, you're, if you're here today and you're not a believer, or maybe you're a seeker, or maybe you've been cynical about the gospel, you think that it's so narrow. The reason I can't believe in the gospel is because of this idea that Christ is the only way back to the Father. Then this is the book you ought to read. I mean, if you're really going to take a serious investigation of it, because in the book of Romans, Paul is laying out very clearly what makes Christianity unique from any other religion? Because it's not based on performance. And friends, I'll tell you, that heresy is just huge in the church. Christ does this, but you do this, and therefore you'll be, you'll be saved. Versus Paul is saying, it is free grace. All these hymns we've been singing, Psalm 55, come and buy freely. Because you see, it can only be free. Because according to what we have seen already in Romans is that there's nobody in here that's righteous. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. That's what Paul says. Now, here's where we are today so I can bring you guys up to speed. In chapter 3, we basically learned that the whole world is guilty, but now there's a righteousness that comes from God. You have none. There are no good church people. There are no good people. There's only justified sinners... And those who are not justified who are seeking to establish a righteousness before God one day by being good. Or you just don't care. And so what Paul has established is that the law was given so that the whole world might become guilty and be seen as unrighteous. But now there is a righteousness, he says in chapter 3, the whole book turns, that comes from God through Jesus Christ. And those who become righteous are those who rest upon him by faith alone, not faith plus anything you do. And so in chapter 4 we saw that, in fact, Abraham was justified not by works because he lived 400 years before the law. He was converted before he was circumcised. So God justified Abraham before the law. And he called Abraham. That's why Abraham was a believer. Now my question to you is this. Has he called you? 
For, for, if you're, I mean, if you're here thinking that meeting God halfway somewhere is what the gospel is, that's not good news. That's death. Uh, I had a professor call them the killer bees. Be good. Be like Jesus. Be like David. Be like Paul. Killer bees. But now here's where we are now. We've been, we started chapter 5 and we're getting ready to go to chapter 6. In chapter 5, Paul is saying, what is the implication to those who are here today that are in Christ and free? What is the implication in your life? And what he tries to say in chapter 5 is, listen, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're absolutely free. Christ has finished the work 2,000 years ago. That is the implication, that you're absolutely secure. Where we come to today is very important. And I know some of you have been waiting on this. Because it's like the gospel can't be that free. Well, what are we supposed to do here? But the question is raised, if Christ has accomplished the work, and if where sin abounds, the grace abounds all the more, let's just sin that grace might abound. Now, I'll guarantee you there are a lot of people here like that this morning. And we all have a tendency to do that. We all have a tendency, do we not, to abuse grace. And we cheapen the blood of Christ. And again, for y'all that don't know me, listen, I always tell people, if you knew me the way I know me, you wouldn't be coming here on Sunday morning. But we're not here to preach Hal Farnsworth. We're not here to preach Presbyterianism. We're not here to preach the law. We're here to preach Jesus Christ. So that's the context. Because you're going to see a God forbid in here by the Apostle Paul. So if you're kind of thinking that I'm a Christian, I asked Jesus into my life, but you can sleep with who you want to, or you can do what you want to. It's okay to gossip. It's okay to look at pornography. It's okay to, to uh, be self-righteous. It's okay to look down your nose at other people. It's okay to be prideful. Then you need to hear this text. So, uh, now, the reason it's printed in the bulletin is because we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. It's through the Scriptures alone that we understand anything, not the Scripture plus anything. So, turn with me to uh, our passage today, and we'll look at it, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper and sing and... Take off. Therefore, as one pre- therefore as one trespass led to co- condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the end of chapter 5. He's looping out. And now there's this parenthesis. He has to explain this because here's the question. Well, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk, not in sin, 
and not in legalism, but newness of life. Newness of life. The difference between a believer and a religious person. And a believer and a pagan. Let's pray together. Father, in the time that we have to look at this text, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in the lives of everyone here. Father, there are two kind of people in this room this morning, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And we're dead in Adam and we're alive in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that everyone this morning might understand the gospel and know what it means to look to Christ who has accomplished the work and know the joy of what it means to walk in newness of life through his resurrection power. And we ask it in your name. Amen. I was converted in 1972. Uh, I had grown up in a church all my life, and I believe that I went to a gospel preaching church. I think it was a a faithful, systematic preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I was actually catechized. I think I've told you all this. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, I have no idea why my mother made me go get catechized, but out of six boys, I, I was the only one that had to do it. Maybe the Lord knew I was going to be a preacher one day. I don't know. I'm sure he knew that. But, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, but, but all that training, all that learning, it had no real net effect on how I lived my life. Uh, I, I, I didn't disagree with anything that I'd ever heard. I, I didn't. I, I believed in Jesus Christ. I believe he was the son of God. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I certainly didn't have any uh, objection to grace because I believed in grace. But the fact of the matter is I had not experienced it. Okay? I was not captivated by grace because I didn't really need grace. I was a basically good person. I really was. I was was the older brother, if you know anything about the parable of the prodigal son. I had a bunch of brothers that were the prodigals. And frankly, if you're an older brother, you're for your religious type, it's, it's much harder to understand grace. And, and yet God in his grace uh, converted me. But I was not captivated by grace. I was captivated by athletics. I was captivated by friends. I was captivated by a girlfriend. I was captivated by have a great family. So I enjoy my family. I was captivated by hunting and fishing. What else was I captivated by? Oh, going to college. I was captivated about uh, being successful in life, and there's certainly nothing wrong about being successful uh, in life. But I was not captivated by the gospel. But then I met Christ my senior year in high school, and I'm not trying to sit here and give you my testimony. I'm trying to make a point here. And then I began to understand what Paul meant early in my Christian life when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not about being good. It's not about trying harder. It's not like, okay, I need to pray. I need to go to church. And all of a sudden, there's a, it's like you enter in and you see the world for what it is. You begin to understand why Christ came because, you know what, if you look around you, the world is in bad shape. And if you don't think we're in dire situation with what's going on in the Middle East right now, that's, I, I digress, but for, for, for all the ages... Uh, the world is fallen. But you begin to see that. And, um, and then all of a sudden I began, seriously, I, I remember the, when I was converted and I came to Christ. And, and by the way, there's different ways people are converted. I mean, some of you might be in the process right now. Maybe the reason you came to church today is the seeds are going to get planted that five years from now you'll know Christ. But I was converted just like that. 
And when I was, I, could, I was actually on a date, and I can remember looking at the girl for the first time as a woman created in the image of God. Seriously. She wanted a female. All of a sudden, I realized that uh, everything mattered because of the resurrection of Christ. If he's raised from the dead, I realized that, golly, poetry matters. I think I'll study poetry. Math matters. History matters. Money matters. Your time matters. Everything matters because Christ is God. And he's raised from the dead. Bam, it hit me. Why? Because I figured it out. Well, I think it's because of grace. And grace begins to captivate. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and y'all have heard me quote this before, but listen to this. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon. He said this, Christianity is either true and of infinite, absolute importance. Christ's resurrection. Or it's not true and it's absolutely of no importance. But one thing Christianity can never be is moderately important. I would say this, you'd be better off for it to to not believe it at all than for it to be moderately important to you because all of a sudden you're you're going to start seeing what I'm talking about here about cheap grace. So uh, between my senior year in high school when I came to Christ, I went off to college uh, uh, as a sophomore and um, began to see inconsistencies in my life. You know what I'm saying? You, you You really want to serve Christ, but... You still see lust in your life and greed and selfishness. You still like talking about people behind their back. You still like thinking you're better than other Christians. You know, I goes, hey, I read my Bible every day, blah, blah, blah. But I began to see the inconsistencies in my life. And not only that, I, you know, have you ever just like willfully sinned against God's grace? Well, I know he's going to forgive me. I mean, I'm a believer. I was a believer then. And, uh, but then I, I read a book by... Another man who saved many Jews and coincidental, providential, marshal. It was by another German named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it was a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And so I'm reading this book as a 19-year-old. And I'm reading this book uh, uh, by a man who was in the United States who saw Nazism, nationalism uh, rising, and he goes back to preach against it while all the other Lutheran ministers and all the other ministers of Germany swept it up underneath the carpet, saying that religion is a private matter. He said, God forbid this is a private matter. Christ was crucified publicly, naked on a cross. When you become a Christian, you you get baptized publicly because it's not just up in your head between you and Jesus. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer went back and he began to preach against the evils of Nazism and therefore he lasted not very long. They put him in prison. He was in prison the whole time and then right after, uh, right before uh, the, the uh, end of the war, two days are left, they take him out and uh, they execute him. But he wrote this book in prison called The Cost of Discipleship. And the thing that really hit me about this book was He had this phrase, he said over and over and over again, that cheap grace is no grace at all. The blood of Christ is the blood of God. To redeem a people for himself, and it is a grace that when understood by the Holy Spirit, is a grace that transforms. That makes sense. But you see, this is the issue that Paul is having to deal with. 
Well, if Christ has already finished the work and he's already done all there is to do, why don't we just go ahead and sin that grace might abound? I mean, Jesus died for me. I walked down the aisle when I was 12 years old. He's forgiven me all my sins. I can screw somebody over in a business deal. I can cheat on this. I can do that. And, of course, uh, we're going to see here in a minute, he says, God forbid. How can he who has died to sin live any longer in it? And so... Here's what I want to do uh, in the next 15 minutes. I want to talk about three things. We need to know what grace is. I mean, if you don't know what grace is, you don't know whether you're sinning against grace. You don't know if it's cheap grace. And then we need to see how grace is abused. And then finally, we need to see why grace actually transforms the believer. It's, supposed to trans- it's not supposed to lead you to guilt and misery and I need to try harder and be harder. Trust me. If you think in any way, by the end of the sermon, I'm going to go, hey, you you need to be more committed. You missed it. It's not about our commitment. It is about his commitment to us. And after this week, that his blood was sufficient. That if over week after week after week, and you're taking communion, and you're, you're getting closer and closer to your death and meeting Christ, if that is somehow not needing its way into your life, where you're more loving and more patient, more kind, then I'm not sure if the gospel is really good news. It's just a concept. It's not about a relationship with this person who is God Almighty in the flesh, raised from the dead, so that we might have everlasting life, beginning right now in this life. So the first thing to ask is, what is grace? What is grace? If you have your bulletin, because I believe this is the Bible, he'll, he'll, he'll tell you right here in verse 18 and following. Look, look down there at the text. He'll tell you what it is. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says something amazing in this verse. He says that the purpose of the law, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, God gave ten commandments, not so that uh, you can know how to live and try to keep those ten commandments So you can be justified with God and God does his part and you do your part and I'm bad, but I'm not bad as that pornographer. I'm bad, but I'm not, uh, you know, I do business and for the most part a trustworthy matter. He says the purpose of the law, okay, was that sin might increase. Now what does he mean by that? Now I want you all to think about this because I'm talking about what real history is. Our text says... That all, your whole life hinges on one of two men. That's what the text says. That Adam has already acted on your behalf. And it doesn't matter what you do years and years and years later. Because you're already dead in him. It's called original sin. I know we don't talk about that much anymore. And so Paul's argument was, Hey, listen, you need to know security is in Christ. Because if the wages of sin is death. Uh, and, and that sin is breaking of the law of God, well, wow, people died from the time of Adam all the way up to Moses. So there must have been a law. So if you're out here thousands of years later and you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments to be justified before God, 
It's, it's literally like uh, writing checks on your dad's inheritance when he's already bankrupt. You got that? Because he's already acted on your behalf. Your father bankrupted the family business, and you still got your little checking account. But you start going around. and it's, Nobody's taking your checks. You know why? Because your father blew the inheritance. That's what Adam has done, you see. But God, who is gracious, promised from the very beginning that there would be one who would fulfill the law's demands and those who are willing to admit that I am so screwed up, I have no hope but in God's provision. And so he gave ten commandments. And our text says he gave ten commandments so that your sin that's already there and everybody in here is a sinner. By the way, would anybody want to come in here this Sunday if, if everybody knew what you did this week? Would anybody raise your hand? Like if you could put your ten top sins of the week that you didn't even know about, put them on your back, would, would anybody be here today? No, because you see, the purpose of the Ten command, Commandments is to pull out of you what's already there so you might see that it's stupid. It is impossible. To, be just, to think that you're going to be justified by the law. Let me put one more way and then we'll move on to the next point here in a minute. The law was simply a mirror. And, um, you know, when I was in high school, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I was the youngest of six brothers. I had uh, two brothers that played football at Georgia. And, you know, I was cool. Everything was great. You know, so you, you ask a girl out and she goes out with you because all your brothers. But... You know, you're at the party, you know, and you're kind of dancing and you're feeling pretty confident, you know. And then you go to the bathroom. And then while you're in the bathroom, you've got all these fluorescent lights, right? And then there's this mirror on the wall. And what you noticed is you had this huge zit in the middle of your forehead. And then you kind of, you're not, you're not quite so confident. You're kind of, you're kind of self-conscious and you think, this girl's not going to like me. i got a huge zip on the, right on the middle of my forehead or on the end of my nose. And see, the purpose of the law is to knock out your confidence in your self-righteousness. There's nobody in here that's righteous. Not your pastor, not my elders, not the deacons, not the people playing the music. There's none righteous, no, not one. But you know what grace is? Grace is this, that there's a second Adam. And the purpose of the law is an x-ray to take you to the great physician of your soul so that you'll look to Christ and Him only. And so he says, well, where sin abounded, well, when the law, I mean, it's just like the, the law is making sin abound, grace abounds all the more. That's why the most wonderful Christians who've known Christ for a long time are the most humble because they're constantly seeing their need for Christ. You see that? So, so it's all of grace. Well, notice uh, then how grace... By the way, let me, let me say this. You know why it's hard to grasp this? Let me tell you why it's hard to grasp this. And I, <clears throat> I promise I wouldn't direct anything to the baseball team, but you guys were good, uh, what do you call it, visual aid. So you guys are all, uh, you know, y'all were performers, right? And you're competing. And Coach uh, Perno, I used to coach high school football. I used to coach uh, little kids football. And guess what? The players always think that they're probably better than the guy starting in front of them. I hate to tell you that. But, of course, if a coach has any sense about him, he's going to play the players that perform the best. Why? Because his job's on the line. Right? But, but, you see, all, but, 
but it's all about performing. Everything's so if you're the, if you're hitting if you're hit batting 400, it's hard to you know if you're batting 250 to say, well, I really ought to be there. I ought to be starting. Or it's about business, or about your schoolwork, or about most religions of the world. Is if you do this, then this happens. But the grace of God is Christ alone performed. He's the one that hit the ball for you, so to speak. And so that brings the second point. What, what, how was grace abused then? Well, it's certainly abused by those who don't understand the gospel. But notice uh, what he says uh, here in verse, verse 1 of chapter 6. What does he say? Well, sh- what shall we say then? If this is true, why don't we continue in sin so that grace might abound? Yeah, yeah, see the reasoning this here? Another uh, translated, uh, uh, tra- translation puts it this way. Why not sin that grace might abound? And what Paul does in chapter 6, okay, is he's doing a parenthesis in an argument. He's going to go, okay, I have to deal with this crazy way of thinking. And so he spends chapter 6 arguing against those who object to this argument. Uh, of free grace. And, uh, and there's three ways that people argue against it. And I'll be brief. One is those who are, use logic. Some people are very smart. They use logic. And, of course, Paul was writing uh, in the context of Greeks and philosophers. And uh, so the idea was pretty much this. Well, if Adam has done everything there is to do, and we're already dead in Adam, uh, and, or we're alive in Christ through his one act, which is his death on the cross. And he submits in the garden to go, not my will, your will be done. And if every sin I've ever committed, past, present, and future, is on Christ, which is what the Bible teaches, right? I mean, that's why you're free, because of the finished work of Christ. Then if every sin I've ever committed or ever will commit, let's, if, let's just let's sin that grace might abound. And there's been a lot of thinking like that in the church. I mean, I've had to deal with it constantly. Through 2,000 years of the church, there are many people who go, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus and everything's fine. And I can do as I please. Uh, <clears throat> there was a gentleman named Gregory Rasmussen who was, uh, who was kind of the spiritual advisor to the Romanov family, the last one before they were executed by the, 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 uh, in the revolution. And he was one that definitely believed that. He's like, well, we need to experience every sin there is. So, because the fact is, if we're in Christ, they're all being paid for. So let's experience sin so that grace might abound. Now, that's logic. But it's wrong logic. But then there's the argument by people who tend to be cynical people. And by, have you ever know, cynical people, one thing I like about cynical people on the one hand is they're always real honest. You can always ask them what they think. And they'll tell you what they think, Okay. Maybe you're a cynical person. That's why you had not come to Christ yet. You're cynical about stuff. And so here's how the cynical person approaches it. They go, well, you know what? If, if, uh, if we by nature like to sin, even as Christians, uh, then does this not naturally lend us to wanting to give in to our natural desires? And so rather than leading to holiness and righteousness, rather than leading to self-denial, which is the essence of being a Christian, I think it, leads, it lends itself to... to uh, to follow your heart because a heart wants what a heart wants, as Woody Allen says. And maybe you're a cynical Christian. Maybe you've already said, well, you know, I can't change myself. 
If the Holy Spirit works in me, then so be it. But until then, I like to gossip, so I'm going to gossip. Until then, I like to look down at my nose at other people. So you just go ahead and do it. Or, um, yeah, I like partying. I mean, I like to party. I mean, he doesn't like to I mean, so I'm just going to do it. And then the, the final uh, argument is, is uh, those who are actually religious people who are saying, wait a minute, if what you're saying is true, we spend our whole lives trying to be good people. Wouldn't that be frustrating? I mean, you're, you're spent your whole life trying to be a good Jew or be a good person, a religious person. And, uh, and uh, here you got this guy saying, hey, it has nothing to do with what you do. Do you know that the most angry people in the world are religious people? Are, are they not? I mean, all you got to do is look, uh, and again, I look at any religion, and I have to be careful here because we live in a culture that doesn't like to name names, okay? But look at any religion that demands works, and you're in, life's in the balance, and you'll find a lot of angry people. You know why? Because you can't do it. They can't do it. Nobody can do it. You're mad at God, and you're mad at everybody else. And by the way, this is rampant in the church of Jesus Christ. People who don't understand grace, they're like, man, you, you need to be careful about preaching that stuff because if you do, it's going to lead people to sin. And what we need to do is have a little bit of law in here. Let me, let me tell you, friends, if that's the way you're thinking, you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're not free. And, uh, you know, I always tell people if you want to join Redeemer, there's one requirement. You must believe you're the worst person joining the church. That's the requirement, right? Justin, you should be the worst. You should say, well, you shouldn't hire me to be the campus minister or John Larson. Uh, but, but you see, religious people, they just don't understand the gospel of grace that when you meet Christ, boom, you've entered into a different reality. So, that's what it is. That's how we abuse it. So, one last thing. Can I tell you why grace actually transforms us? I mean, grace doesn't make you free to go do what you want to do. It actually makes you free to change. That's what he says. What shall we say then? Or would you continue that grace and sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might do what? Walk in what? Legalism? Newness of life. If you, if you have not met Christ, there is no newness. You're either a person that goes, I don't, I don't care about all this stuff, and say so you end up living the life you want to live, and in the meantime you destroy everybody around you. Or you're the person who's over here that's like, wow, you know what? I really need to hear what the pastor says and I need to be more committed to Jesus. Well, you don't get it either. That's what a lot of marriages are today. Like, okay, we have to be married. Versus, man, I, I love my wife. I love my husband. It's not like, okay, I have to go get my wife flowers because... You know, she's been out of town this weekend on the women's retreat. And that's what they like. Right? Seriously. That's how a lot of us live as Christians. Okay, I have to go to church on Sunday. 
Okay, I have to be a good person. Okay, I can't talk about that person. First is being captivated by Jesus. But where do I see that specifically? Notice what he says is this. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Let me tell you what that means, and then we're done. That means you identify with him. I did a wedding yesterday right here. And uh, we talked about uh, vows and marriage and commitment, and, we, and rings are a sign of your commitment. It's saying publicly... That ring says that I'm committed to Mary Beth Chandler Farnsworth. And we made that vow 32 years ago. Let me put it in another term. Um, since I have a visual aid over here, you guys do play for Georgia, right? And, uh, and so when you play your first game, you're going to wear a Georgia uniform. And people like me are going to go, oh, you're the Georgia guy. And you're going to identify with your team, and we're going to identify with glory, right? Glory, glory to a Georgia, which is probably heresy to say that, but uh, Georgia's the center of my life. That's what glory means, by the way. My whole life's around Georgia. Yeah. But you wear the uniform that says you're part of that team. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a sign that I am identified with Christ and He is mine and I will live for Him. That's what it means. Let me, let me conclude by putting it this way. Theologians say there's three, three, three steps to being saved. Okay? There is the notitia. It's a Latin word for knowledge. You've got to get the information, okay? Some of you might not know anything about Jesus Christ. And if you don't, I'd love to talk to you about it because I think you need to know. <laughs> you know about your sin, but you don't know what to do about it. So you have the notitia. You get the information. And then you have uh, what they call the ascensus. And you go, wow, you know, I really think this is true. I really, really think this is true. And then the last phase is where a lot of people never get to. It's called the fiducia. So what we get fiduciary account. It's the word faithfulness. It is the word that I am now committed. You're not dating anymore. You're married. And the sign of that marriage is that you perform. The sign of that marriage is that there's fruit in your marriage. Let me conclude with this. There was a guy who was the number two recruit in America. He's a lineman. I, can't, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Some of you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Great big old boy. And uh, he, uh, he made a verbal commitment to an arch rival team. You know who I'm talking about. So he makes that commitment. Man, I swear I'm going to go. And all these, uh, shall I say, Auburn fans, <laughs> um, they're all excited. This guy, he's committing us. And, of course, I'm a nut about this recruiting stuff. I confess my sin. I'm sitting there going, okay, who's the number two recruit? And it doesn't really matter. But anyhow, so I'm reading about this. And then, and then all of a sudden, he didn't send his facts in. He made that verbal commitment. But he did not sign on the dotted line. They had all these Auburn fans who were like, man, we, can't, we love you, man. This is but guess who he signed with? Alabama. And he faxed that one in. So he's going to 
wear a completely different uniform. And all Auburn fans who love this guy hate him now. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Georgia fan. I like, guys, I want you to know, I like baseball. I, I, I'm an idiot enough to listen to it on Friday nights. I'm not, not idiot enough. I love baseball. But you, that part of anybody in here watching, listening to baseball on WLAC on Friday night. But, um, but you know, it's just like, man, I, my brothers played at Georgia. I love Georgia. I grew up in South Carolina, but I love Georgia. Don't we? If you're a Georgia fan. Guys, this, this is what it means to be united to Christ. You have a new last name. He is yours. And friends, I'm telling you, if that doesn't cause you not to sing glory, glory to old Georgia, but glory be to God Almighty, the risen Christ and highest. And that doesn't affect your life. I don't care how religious you are or irreligious you are. You're missing the whole point. Do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? If you sat on the dotted line and say, Jesus Christ, you're more important to me than my wife, my husband, my children, football, baseball, basketball, you're it. And let me tell you, you know freedom. You're free. You're really free. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would bless our time together. And uh, Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here. If there's anybody here who does not know Jesus Christ, been dating him for a long time but never married, no fruit of a union with him, Lord, did you convert them this morning? Bring them to Christ. Cause them to rest in him. Father, for us who, who uh, deny you in many ways because uh, we abuse your grace, would you convict us of our sin that you did not save us to live in sin but to be conformed to the image of Christ and walk in newness of life. Pray for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.